Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Today's story is a complicated one. One where, no matter how much information is given, it never quite seems like enough. The story never really feels fully told. On March 5th, 2012, the longest-serving criminal in Chicago history died behind bars after serving most of his life for crimes that, if you believe him, he did not commit. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. William George Hirons, born November 15, 1928, grew up in Lincolnwood, a small suburb of Chicago, and spent most of his early life living in the post-Great Depression, poverty-stricken home with his parents who argued more than they loved. Because of this, William was known to wander the streets of Chicago to escape his parents' screams. When William was just 12 years old, he began working at a local grocery store, and one day, accidentally shortchanged himself with one of the customers. To make up for the loss, he stole a single dollar bill from an apartment by reaching his slender arm through the small crack of a chain door. This became the beginning of a history of petty theft, which eventually graduated to more personal items. At the age of 13, he was caught breaking into the basement of a local building and began his first of a long list of arrests that labeled him as a bit of a nuisance. But with the exception of his little hobby and his small hoard of pilfered items, some expensive and others seemingly mundane, William Hirons gave little indication that he would grow up and become the man that everyone around the world referred to as the lipstick killer. But more on that in a minute. After his hobby got him a few more arrests, police decided to send him to a boys' semi-correctional school in Indiana. He was arrested shortly after completing his program and was once again shuttled off to a private institution. At both schools, William excelled academically, was the top of his class, and was described by teachers as the impeccable student, which is why at the age of just 16, he was able to qualify for courses at the University of Chicago and into their gifted program. By 1945, at the age of 17, he was enrolled in the classes and had hopes of becoming an electrical engineer, hoping that school would be his ticket out of his parents' home, a ticket to a more normal life. 
Unfortunately, despite the workload the school offered, his involvement in extracurricular activities, his growing friend group, and his string of girlfriends, William could not seem to give up his childhood hobby and eventually decided to escalate into something much more sinister. The same year William started his courses at the university, on June 5, 1945, 43-year-old Josephine Ross was found dead in her apartment, having been repeatedly stabbed in the neck, head wrapped up in a dress, wounds taped shut, and with some dark hairs clutched in the fist that tried to fight off her killer. From what police could figure, Josephine was surprised by her intruder, and with no valuables missing, and her fiancé, ex-husbands, and former boyfriends all having alibis, investigators were left scratching their heads at the case. The only real piece of evidence they had to go on was the vague description of a dark-complected man who was reportedly loitering around the apartment and seen running from the scene. A man who they were never able to locate or identify. As the months began to pass and Josephine's case began to chill, December 10th, 1945 brought a new death that would send the investigation into overdrive. That's the day that they found Frances Brown lying in her apartment with a knife lodged in her neck and a bullet wound to the head that was, like in the first scene, wrapped up with fabric. A cleaning woman had heard Frances' radio playing loudly and, noting the open door, walked in to find the gruesome scene. Now, while the state of the woman's body was enough to give pause to even the most seasoned detective, it was what was written on the wall that really made their stomach drop. Written in what appeared to be lipstick were the words, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. In addition to the smudged, bloody fingerprints found on the door jam, police also got wind that a man named George Weinberg had heard gunshots at around 4 a.m., giving them a good window for Francis's time of death. Right around the same time, John Derrick, the night clerk stationed in the building's lobby, saw a nervous-looking man ranging from 35 to 40 years old and weighing about 140 pounds get off the elevator, fumble at the door, and exit onto the street. Despite these descriptions, four days later, the Chicago police announced that they believed a woman was their killer. When news of the murders and the macabre notes scrolled in women's lipstick were made public, the story became an absolute sensation, gripping the women of Chicago with fear and placing incredible pressure on the Chicago police to catch the lipstick killer before he struck again. Less than a month after Francis was killed, on January 7, 1946, six-year-old Suzanne Degnan was reported missing from her first-floor bedroom in Edgewater, Chicago. When police responded, they found a ladder outside her window with a ransom note that read, Jail $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. Burn this for her safety. In a mixture of lowercase and capital letters and a mashup of misspelled words. In addition to the ransom note, an unknown man made a number of phone calls to the Degnan residence, demanding the ransom, and Chicago Mayor Edward Kelly received a note of his own. This one read, This is to tell you how sorry I am not to not get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? At the time of Suzanne's abduction, there was a nationwide meatpacker strike 
and the Office of Price Administration, the OPA, was talking of extending rationing to dairy products as well, something many had very strong opinions about. Suzanne's father was a senior executive at OPA and had only recently been transferred to Chicago. And while another executive of the administration had been assigned armed guards to protect his family after some death threats, and a man involved in black market meat had only recently been decapitated, the Degnans were not deemed a potential victim of the growing hostility. Though police started to consider the abduction may have been at the hands of a meatpacker, acting on an anonymous tip, police searched the sewer a block away from the Degnan home and, inside, found the head of Suzanne Degnan. Her right leg was later found in a catch basin, her torso in another storm drain, left leg in a drain nearby, her arms found a month later were in a different sewer, and blood was found in the drains of a laundry tub in the basement of a laundry room at a nearby apartment building. The coroner charged with Suzanne's care said that she was more than likely already dead when she was brought to the basement, and that the killer was, quote, either a man who worked in a profession that required the study of anatomy or one with a background in dissection. Not even the average doctor could be as skillful. It had to be a meat cutter. Still not sure Suzanne's murder was connected with the murders of Josephine and Francis, police began questioning hundreds of individuals, gave polygraphs to about 170 of them, and on several occasions claimed they caught the killer only to release the suspect before any trials ever came to fruition. While all of this was going on, William Hirons was living large as a young playboy at the university. He started taking ballroom dancing classes, had started and grown quite good at chess, and celebrated his uncle's safe return from the war, all while the police worked long hours to try and figure out who killed these three victims. At one point in the investigation, police arrested 65-year-old Hector Verberg, the janitor at the Degnan's building, and told the press, quote, this is the man, despite the fact that he did not match the profile created by the coroner. While there was evidence that he may have frequented the so-called murder room, Hector in no way possessed the surgical skills needed to dismember Suzanne's body. According to sources, Hector's wife implicated her husband under the pressure of the local police. And after holding him for questioning for 48 hours, Hector left the police station with a number of injuries that included a separated shoulder. Despite this, he maintained his innocence. In the end, it was determined that Hector, a Belgian immigrant, could not write in English well enough to leave the crude ransom notes. He ended up successfully suing the Chicago PD for $15,000, and his wife received $5,000 of it. Another notable false lead came when police found blonde hairs at the back of the Degnan apartment building, as well as a wire police suspected could have been used as a garrote and a handkerchief that may have been used to keep Suzanne quiet. On this piece of fabric was a laundry mark, S. Sherman, which was eventually traced to a discharged Marine Sidney Sherman, who served during World War II. Living in the Hyde Park YMCA, when police came to question Sidney, they discovered that he had vacated the residence without checking out and quit his job without picking up his last check. Suspicious, a nationwide manhunt began, and Sidney was found four days later in Toledo, Ohio. He claimed he had just eloped with his girlfriend, hence the quick getaway, and said that the handkerchief did not belong to him. He passed a polygraph test and was later cleared. 
The handkerchief was later traced to its real owner, Airman Seymour Sherman of New York City, who had been out of the country when the murder took place. He had no idea how his handkerchief ended up in Chicago. A few other false leads came and went, including the arrest of two teenagers who claimed they were involved in the murder, only to be cleared by polygraph. And by April of 1946, some 370 suspects had been questioned and cleared of involvement in the murder, while the press continued to bring down the hammer on the Chicago PD and how they were handling the Degnan investigation. Then, while police and the press were working on building a case against a man named Richard Russell Thomas, who was implicated due to the handwriting similarities and a criminal record, William Hirons, in the middle of a budding new romance, decided that he needed some extra cash for his upcoming date, a decision that would end up changing his life and the course of the entire investigation. William's original plan was to cash in on a savings bond for $1,000 at the post office, which he, of course, had stolen. But the post office was unfortunately closed when he arrived. Not too worried, William did what he did best and reached into the open apartment door in the same upscale neighborhood where Suzanne Degnan had once lived. This time, he was spotted by an on-edge tenant, and as he fled, William was tailed by two policemen. Cornered, he pulled out a gun and aimed it at the two officers. Now, what happened next is up for debate, depending on who you believe. According to William, the officers shot at him first. According to them, he was the first person to pull the trigger. Regardless, though, shots were fired, William fled, and the chase was ended when an off-duty police officer, still wearing his swimsuit from a beach trip, stopped the suspect by smashing a stack of flower pots over his head and knocking him unconscious. A 17-year-old William Hirons was arrested for the attempted burglary, stitched up at the local hospital, and sent to the hospital wing at the Cook County Jail, where he was subjected to a torturous interrogation, one in which he would slip in and out of consciousness due to pain, around the clock for six days, refused food and water, and not allowed to speak with his parents for at least four days, nor given the opportunity to speak with a lawyer. On his fifth day in custody, William was given a lumbar puncture without anesthesia and driven to the police headquarters for a polygraph test. It was eventually rescheduled because he was in too much pain to cooperate. Eventually, two psychiatrists without a warrant or parental consent gave the teen sodium pentothal and interrogated him for three hours. Under the influence, William spoke of a man named George, who committed the lipstick murders. However, what was actually said has long been disputed as the original transcript has disappeared. Police went searching for this George person, which was actually his father's name and his middle name. William went on and claimed that he met this man when he was 13 years old, that it was George who sent him out prowling in the night to steal for fun, and, quote, killed like a cobra when cornered. He said that he'd been taking the rap for George for years, first for the thefts and then for the murders. Eventually, psychologists explained that George was actually a made-up figure, much like that of a childhood imaginary friend, and was used to keep William's antisocial feelings and actions separate from the successful man that he was in his day-to-day life. Though they were skeptical at first, police eventually named William Hirons as the suspect in the three murders and searched his room at the University of Chicago, his parents' home, and a locker at a local train station that he kept. 
In the locker, they found evidence of his lifetime work as a thief. And after taking his fingerprints, connected him to the prints found on Suzanne's ransom note. Something that would later be disputed and the smudged fingerprints found at Francis Brown's murder scene. On June 30th, 1946, Captain Emmett Evans told the newspapers that William Hirons had been cleared as a suspect in Francis Brown's case. Yet, just 12 days later, Chief of Detectives Walter Storms confirmed that the smudge did belong to William. Despite the fact that William's handwriting did not match the lipstick warning on Francis's wall, the fact that the FBI required 12 points of identification to deem fingerprints 100% match, and police only had nine points, and that Williams' quote confession was disputed by several professionals, police charged William Hirons as the lipstick killer. On July 12, 1946, he was indicted for assault with the intent to kill, robbery, 23 counts of burglary, and three counts of murder. While sitting in a jail cell, William heard the Chicago Tribune report on the story, and when speaking about his confession, he yelled out, I didn't confess to anybody, honestly. My God, what are they going to pin on me next? Two days after the indictment, state's attorney William Toohey met in a closed-door meeting with William's lawyers, who said that, while they felt William was guilty, their job was to make sure he didn't get sent to the electric chair. William Toohey, on the other hand, wasn't 100% confident that he could win the case. So they attempted to strike up a deal in which William would serve one life sentence if he confessed to the murders of Josephine Ross, Francis Brown, and Suzanne Degnan. With the help of his lawyers, who pressured him to accept the deal, William began drafting out his official confession, using the Chicago Tribune article about the murders as a guide to fill in the blanks. Both he and his parents signed the confession, and all parties agreed to a date of July 30th as the date for his official confession. Several reporters stood there on that date and asked William a number of questions. He stood there bewildered and gave non-committal answers. Years later, he would blame all of this on William Toohey and say, He kept emphasizing the word truth, and I asked him if he really wanted the truth. He assured me that he did. Now Toohey made a big deal about hearing the truth. Now when I was being forced to lie to save myself, it made me angry, so I told them the truth, and everyone got very upset. Toohey later withdrew the previously agreed-upon sentence and changed it to three life terms, threatened him with the death penalty if he went to trial, and threatened to charge him with another murder, that of Estelle Carey, even though he was attending a school for wayward boys in Indiana at the time of her death. Furious that their client reneged on the plea bargain, William eventually agreed to a new plea deal and, in an effort to save his life, took full responsibility for the three murders on August 7th, 1946, in which he was forced to reenact the crime against Susan Degnan in public and in front of the press. On September 4th, William admitted his guilt on the burglary and murder charges and, that night, attempted to hang himself inside of his cell. He survived the attempt on his life and, the next day, was formally sentenced to three consecutive life terms in prison. While waiting to be transferred to Statesville Prison, a sheriff asked William if Suzanne Degnan suffered when she was murdered. He responded, I can't tell you if she suffered, Sheriff Mulcahy. I didn't kill her. Tell Mr. Degnan to please look after his other daughter, because whoever killed Suzanne is still out there. 
He spent the rest of his life asserting his innocence and on March 5th, 2012, William Hirons, after spending most of his life behind bars, died due to complications from diabetes. He was 83 years old. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on March 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.